Joshua. Joshua continues to, we see signs of leading with strength. You will also, in that character of this man, not only strength spiritually, but even physically, and by his age time frame, to ensure the number one thing, not to get his name promoted, not get his name on some, some landmarks in the promised land. That's not his motivation. His motivation is to do the will of God. That is his whole focus of living his life, is to do the will of God, to hear from God and then to do what God says. Even with all the competing factors of within the tribes, even the competing factors of the nation, but especially the enemies within the promised land, everything is coming against this man. But that doesn't sway him from getting done what God has shown him to have done. He's a leader. And it takes physical work. It takes a spiritual work. A mental work. It has to stay very focused on And that is why he was successful in accomplishing the mission that God had given them. To ensure God's will is done in the making sure now the remaining of chapter 18 and 19, the remaining, uh, the, the inheritance remaining is complete. Now we don't know Joshua's age at this point in time of Israel's history. But if you take a few factors as we go through, I, I kind of like putting the puzzles together. We know Caleb was 85 when he was the first one to get the, the allotted uh, land, the inheritance. He was able to, to, to ask for a certain land in the mountains, and he was able to get that. And he was 85. We saw that in chapter 14, verse 10. And if you take a look at Joshua, we know when we look in chapter 24, verse 19, Joshua lived to 110 years old. And so if you take a look at the factors, you've probably roughly around 10 years to accomplish the rest of this time that we're talking about. He's probably right around 100 years old when we see this divvying out the land of the inheritance. Now the events described remaining here at the remaining last part of this book uh, is interesting because the five tribes now we've already seen have already been given to their inheritance. And Joshua and Eliezer and the 12 tribal leaders uh, cast lots in Gilgal to make that happen. We saw that in the first five tribes. Now tonight we're going to see the seven tribes still having the, the inheritance remaining needing to be marked out. Land surveying has to be taking place. And apparently, they were very slow or hesitant to finish the possession of their inheritance. And we will see that here tonight. So, in Joshua 18, verses 1 through 3, we see now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there. And the land was subdued before them, but... There remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect, keyword, to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? 
So if you've ever been a leader <laughs> and you've been responsible of doing a certain task and you've got some who are very eager and ready to go and keep, let's keep moving, let's get this done. And you've got others who will lag behind and very hesitant and not and very reluctant, passive aggressives, all kinds of personalities come out trying to not want to do something that's difficult or something that they're just not ready because they're kind of comfortable, whatever it may be. But before this final division of the remaining of the land were made, the Israelites moved their central camp, notice, no longer in Gilgal when they did the five tribes. They have now moved in this process up to Shiloh, which is about 20 miles northwest from the Jordan Valley that they um, were... Uh, planted at and the map there you can't see it it's not real clear probably behind me but they moved to the hill country why well probably because Shiloh was located in the central of the promised land and was a convenient location where the tabernacle or the tent of the meeting that it's referred to here could remind the people that the tabernacle where God's presence is is central to their living Central to their decision making, central to where they're to come. And so they set it up here and it would it reminded the people the key is to keep your mind on him. That he is the central of your life. If they wanted to have prosperity and blessing in the land that God promised, they need to stay focused on their worshiping and their serving of Yahweh. If you walk away from serving and, and worshiping Yahweh, then don't expect blessings, God says. So to promote this sense of national unity with all the division now of, of all the tribes, unfortunately, we saw <laughs> in 17, uh, verses 14 through 18, Joseph's uh, uh, sons was very dissatisfied with their allotment. They, didn't, they weren't happy with the inheritance that was the casting of lots there for them. But that was a, obviously a very clear or dark shadowing of the future disintegration among the tribes that we know historically as we read the rest of the, the, the scriptures. And that disintegration will happen and affect the nation. Why? Because of self-interest. Selfishness is what caused division within these tribes. But they're remaining these among the, the children of Israel, these seven tribes that needed to have their inheritance. And he, Joshua, had to go to them and ask, why are they not, why aren't you taking possession of the land? You have responsibility. God gave you the promised land. All the tribes are in unity to push out the enemies. They pushed out the enemies. Now you have responsibility per tribe to claim and go into that part of the inheritance and you were to then final do the final push out of all the enemy and claim the cities and the towns and, and make that your tribal location. But why didn't they do that? Why would Joshua need to prod them to get the promised land that they've been waiting for all these years? Probably because these people were who had been so comfortable being nomads and no permanent responsibilities or dwellings and they were maybe comfortable with that. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe something new was going to happen and they weren't sure what was going to be new and that was just a little bit too much. 
Even if it was good, it was promised to be good, they were still very reluctant and fearful to do it. They could have been overwhelmed by the war weariness. Remember, they've been fighting war after war after war a while. You can get war, uh, worse, weak, weak or wearisome in war. Exhausted by the struggling of the possession of the promised land. Maybe he's like, I don't know if I have it in me. I don't think I have the diligence to keep going. Because there just seems to be a fight after fight after fight after fight, struggle after struggle, and we're just tired. Doesn't that feel like that in spiritual warfare as well? You're always constantly the spiritual warfare, one after another after another, and it can make you war weariness. This weariness that will come, exhaustion physically, mentally, but even spiritually. But Joshua knew, as a leader, regardless of how you feel, you need to keep showing up. <laughs> because Joshua said, had to remind them and prod them once again to bring them back to focus on God. Because they must have gotten distracted and off onto the things. Why wouldn't you go possess what God has said is for you? What's distracting you from doing God's will? What's distracting you from having the blessings of God? Because you're getting wrapped up in the world? Were they getting wrapped up in all the culture there in this promised land? Were they feasting off those beautiful fruit, the fruit and the honey and the fruit of the land? What was distracting them? But Joshua knew that inaction to finish the work was one of the greatest concerns for him as a leader because he knew probably if you continue to wait and delay, then you're going to allow the enemy to have a foothold in this land that you're supposed to possess. Your procrastination has consequences. And so unlike Caleb and the daughters of Zelophad who immediately were asking for their land and ready to go get it and conquer whoever the enemy's in there and take possession of it. These tribes didn't have the faith. They didn't have the spiritual zeal. They didn't understand the urgency of finishing and completing and finishing well God's will. That he made very clear. Remember, these tribes had been helping fight battle after battle after battle and defeating the enemy. It's not like they were engaged. But now they're hesitant to claim their inheritance and enjoy the land that God had given them. Because there was something about, they were very focused on something what they wanted and didn't want to go finish. Now what's interesting is I pondered on this. I said, you know, what, what's the consequences of this? Well, yeah, the enemy could get in there and get a foothold and maybe get some alliances and maybe not allow them to be able to push in. But God had already conquered the lands, so it's not like they, it was going to be a major push in there. And then all of a sudden it hit me. All the tribes were involved in conquering the land. Two and a half tribes needed to go back to the east side. Those two and a half uh, tribes of warriors were still sitting there waiting for all this to take place. They can't go home to their families yet. It always impacts other people. When you're not doing and completing what God's called you, it will always impact other people around you. How important it is that we stay focused on what God has called you to do 
continue to do it. Because if not, there's consequences. Now, how long will you neglect to go and possess the land? He called them out on it. A, a leader like Joshua, he's called you out. He didn't soft, be soft out and insensitive. He called you out. They called him out. You're neglecting to go and possess the land. Then he picks back up here in verse 4. Pick up from among you. Now he's giving direction. He didn't say, why are you neglecting and then walk away? He's now giving them direction as a leader. This is what you need to do. The question is, will they be obedient and do it? So pick up among, uh, from among you three men from each tribe. And I will send them. And they will rise and go through the land and survey it according to their inheritance. And come back to me. And they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall remain in their territory on the south, and the houses of Joseph shall remain in their territory on the north. You shall therefore survey the land in seven parts and bring the survey here to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance." And Gad and Reuben and half of the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Then the men arose to go away, and Joshua charged those who went to survey the land, saying, and here's the final words, very clear direction of what they were to do. Go, walk through the land, survey it, and come back to me, that I may cast lots for you, here before the Lord in Shiloh. So when you look at these verses 4 through 8, Joshua was, was for action. But not with just un, with some hesitation. Just go. Just go, go, go. Just get out of my face and just go up there and get it done. No, he, he didn't yell and rant and rave and do all those things that some leaders do because that's the only way they can get people to be motivated and moved is be irrational. No, no. He, he's a calm man patient man but he gives direction and what he says here is go up there and carefully prepare you take three men each tribe of, of the seven remaining tribes go up there and survey the land measure that out they must have had some expertise of being able to measure out and do land surveying topical graphical type thing and bring it back and then we're going to cast lots and see what the Lord is going to provide to you as your inheritance. Now Joshua directed these 21 men, three from each, from the seven remaining tribes. And he sent them to do a very specific and important task. Now how long will this complex task take? We don't know. We don't know how long it takes for them to do this. Um, but obviously it was a job that required some skill sets to be able to do so what did they do verse 8 or for 9 and 10 so the men went passed through the land and wrote the survey in a book or we they would refer to as a scroll in seven parts by cities and they came to joshua at the camp of shiloh then joshua cast lots for them in shiloh before the lord and there joshua divided the land to the children of israel according to their divisions 
Now it's interesting here, we're going to look at the remaining of these seven tribes and what they're receiving, and I'm going to give you a kind of a summary and highlights and points that the Lord has shown me in each of these sections. Again, you can go through it and read every single town and city you would like. And see what the Lord shows you as well. But the first one we see in chapter 18 in verses 11 through 28 is the boundaries and the cities of the tribe of Benjamin. So we think about this. Seven tribes are standing there looking. They've come back with the surveys. They've looked at what they found. And then God you know, prays and then throws out the lots, throws the lots out, throws the dice, whatever they are, throws them out. And it points to somehow, some way, the Lord shows clearly Benjamin is the first one to be allotted of those seven. And when you take a look at now the lot of the tribe of the children of Benjamin came to up according to their families in the territory of their lot came out between the children of Judah and the children of Joseph. Now I read that because when you read the rest of them, this is the only one that describes it very specifically where it's going to be planted between. I find it very interesting, maybe Dan as well. But if you look at that, just that very first sentence. Benjamin being the full brother of Joseph, his territory was assigned adjacent to his. And I can understand that. You're going to be by your own, your full brother. And so for the same mother, so that you're going to be there. But also I find this fascinating because between the struggles between the two tribes of uh, Judah and, and Joseph were real. And we see that historically, right? There's a lot of challenges between them. God's in wisdom puts Benjamin right in between them and doesn't allow those territories to touch. Benjamin becomes that border between the two brothers or two tribes. So when I take a look at those, that all the way through 28 there and see that the fact that Judah and, and Joseph, in reference here is Ephraim, that's, that's Judah, these minimizes that development of that rivalry between those two tribes. There's 20 cities with their villages that sit within the territory that was given to them. Now, when I look through those cities, especially when you get to verse 21 and you scan those cities, if you know the scripture, you know some of those are very significant cities that play into the history of, of Israel, like Jericho, Bethel, Gibeon, Ramah, Mitzpah, and then you see at the very end the city of Jerusalem. That city of Jerusalem sits in Benjamin's tribal area that was given to as a as a um, as, the, as part of the inheritance. Now the next the next lot he, there goes Joshua he throws the lots and the next one comes out Simeon is the next one is selected by God to give the land into which land he's going to get in verses one through nine. Now, when you look at that and you scan through those verses, it, because Judah had more territory than it needed, how do we know that? Verse 9, if you go back in verse 9, we read, and in the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy, most people forget this. There's a prophecy in Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7, that Simeon was given the land in the southern section of Judah's territory, that consisted of 17 towns and their villages. So Judah, you'll see in the map, you'll see Simeon planted right in the middle of the land. Why? Because prophecy was fulfilled 
that was told back in Genesis 49. But it was not long before Simeon was to lose her identity as a tribe because that territory will be incorporated eventually into Judah. Judah was just too large and it's just too much and it incorporated, infiltrated. And many of the citizens in this scripture in 2 Chronicles 15 verse 9 and 2 Chronicles 34 verse 6 tells us many of those citizens of Simeon's tribe, they actually migrated north to Ephraim and to Manasseh. So they went, they went north. They got out of town because Judah become a little bit too crazy and overcome all their property. Now this would explain, right? So what was the consequences when we start thinking, what, was, what do we know in the scriptures? This explains why in, in the future, especially in the division of the kingdom following Solomon, there are only 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. Those two tribes in the south was Judah and Benjamin. Why? Simeon got engulfed and they all left and went north and became part of the ten tribes in the north. Now, verse in chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, right? We see the third lot. And that lot was to Zebulun. Now, according to the scriptures here, we see that Jacob's prophecy of Zebulun would Live. There's another prophecy given here by Jacob back in Genesis 49:13 that says, "Live by the seashore and become a haven for ships." That was their promise in the future. Now it's interesting when you look at the map and you look in this, the, the the cities and trying to figure that out. Many commentators and many of us will say, yes, their land was not at the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't on the Mediterranean Sea, what you think it is. There must have been some kind of connection, their land, to the Mediterranean Sea that we're just not aware of. Because the prophecy would have been fulfilled and it would have been possible that they would have somehow been touching water to become what they say, living by the seashore and becoming haven for ships. Now that consisted of 12 cities and their villages, but strangely omitted, if you know the geographical location, the city of Nazareth is not mentioned at all here. And I find that fascinating. I don't know why. Was it not existent to the, to the, the level? Was it too small to mention? I, Nazareth, what good can come from Nazareth? You know? <laughs> you know, it wasn't even on the map. It's like you know, when you look at the maps today and you go, well, you only see certain cities on the map. It's because of population. And the more, the deeper you go, you know, you get more and more down to the little towns and little, you know, smaller places. But for some reason, uh, those things, this this tribe is a little, you know, a little too empty for me right now. Why? Why not Nazareth there? And oh, by the way, why aren't they directly connected to the Mediterranean Sea? But note. Because many times, and I, I remember, I think, way back in the beginning when I first got saved and I was reading through the scripture, I saw, ooh, Bethlehem. That's where Bethlehem? No, no, that's not this Bethlehem that you're thinking of. Bethlehem mentioned in Joshua 19.15 is not the Bethlehem village of Judah in Micah 5.2 where Jesus was born. So just so you know, if you thought, oh, I know Bethlehem. No, it's not the same Bethlehem, different Bethlehem. Now in chapter 19, verses 17 through 23 is Issachar. That's the fourth uh, lot that was cast. 
And we will see that lying east of Zebulun and south of the Sea of Galilee, Issachar was to occupy the most beautiful, fertile, and beautiful valley of uh, Jezreel, also noted as a very key battlefield that we see in Judges 6.33 and Hosea 1.5. And that consists of 16 cities and their villages for that, uh, for that tribe. Now in verses 24 through 31, we see Asher. It's the fifth lot that was cast. Now when you take a look at this one, Asher was assigned the Mediterranean coastal lands from Mount Carmel north to Sidon and Tyra, consisting of 22 cities and their villages. You'd think they have the prime location of real estate, wouldn't you think? If you ever been on the Mediterranean Sea, you know they've got some prime real estate right there. And they, because of the place they're at and that coastal position, they would also historically be the key to protect the northern coastland from the enemies of the Phoenicians that could come down by water. They were tremendous uh, warriors on the water. Now, this tribe fades away. Historically, as we read through the scriptures, it fades away over time. It doesn't completely lose its tribal identity, but it, it gets really... You would think on the coastal, you would think that would just be flourishing. Everyone would want to go to the coast, right? Uh, west coast of uh, Israel. But let me remember your favorite prophetess. Do you know who your favorite prophetess is? Anna, right? Along with Simeon gave thanks to the birth of Jesus, what we see in Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. And so when we go... What's going? What happened to the tribe of Asher? She's she's the kind of the poster child or <laughs> prophetess that still reminds us that the that tribe was still in existence. Now, verses thirty-two through thirty-nine talks about Naphtali, that sixth lot, and next to Asher on the east side, Naphtali had the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee at its eastern border. It consisted of 19 cities that we see in their villages in the description there. Now, if you go through the Old Testament, you will not see much of this land in the Old Testament. It's this part of the region was not significant whatsoever. It does not become significant until the New Testament because that's the, ge the geographical location or the Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ was in there and around Capernaum and, and the, and the uh, Sea of Galilee and up and down the Jordans. And that's why we think of it so often. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't significant. Now, in verses 40 through 48, we see the tribe of Dan. Oh, the tribe of Dan. It's kind of an interesting one here in these verses because on the seventh lot, the last tribe here, we see that the least desirable portion of all the inheritance fell to Dan. Surrounded by Ephraim and Benjamin, Judea's territory. I mean, they're surrounded there. Matter of fact, they're so surrounded. Notice as you go through this, these, through this uh, verses 40 through 48, there are no boundaries noted for them. 
they're actually, they form like a belt with Benjamin across the entire land. And their boundaries are so coincide with these other three, Ephraim and Benjamin and, and, and Judas, that there's no boundaries described at all. Like the rest of them all had some, some physical Dead Sea or the Mediterranean Sea or the Galilean Sea. or the They had some description, not Dan, because they were incorporated with really no clear boundaries. Now, not only was their original location too small, but after part of the territory of Dan was lost to the Amorites in Judges 134, most of that tribe migrated north, far north, right up by the left of Syria today, and it went to the mountain range there and, and attacked and settled in the city of Lishem or Lesa, Laos, up there on the map, up opposite the northern sector of Naphtali and named it Dan. And we see that uh, taking place in Judges 18. So you can go back in Judges 18 and read that account. Now, so God provided for the needs of each tribe. He's always faithful to provide his, his people with their needs. He's very faithful for us to provide as children of God our needs. We don't have to fear that. But though in some cases, parts of their inheritance are still in the hands of the enemy. Why? Because they were not fully obedient. God said to cast them all out. And they compromised. And then we read, especially in the first five tribes, they kept them and used them as slaves, as servants. They wanted to benefit versus getting them out. And then what happened is many of those were now this paganism and everything started creeping into the nation of Israel and, and, and intermarriaging and all kinds of problems. And we see that historically as we continue through the scriptures. But the Israelites were to possess the promised land by faith. That's what God told Moses, told uh, Joshua to tell the people they were to possess this land by faith. They needed to completely trust God to enable them to defeat their enemies. And if you don't have faith, the spiritual warfare for us today will ravage you if you do not live and trust God completely by faith. They needed to go by faith and possess that or the enemies would come in. And we saw that take place at times when they did not have God doing, working and doing uh leading them into to taking over these, uh, the, the enemy's territory. But once they got the land, Israel themselves were to claim each of their tribal inheritance also by faith. Now, picture this. God comes in, here's the land. Boom. I cast out the enemies. Boom. He uses them to do it. Now they're to then take full possession of their inheritance and live by faith in the area that God called them to be. They had responsibilities. And it wasn't easy. War after war. Challenge after challenge. Going from the known to unknown. Doing things they've never done before. Living in a place they've never been before. 
All of those things, my brothers and sisters, require faith. For us to learn early on in our walk with God to live by faith and not by sight is so important. To be so close to God in your prayer life and as you study the word, that he speaks to you through and by his word to give you clarity and assurance of what his will is. And when you stop asking God for the small things or the big things, when you stop asking God, you're in trouble. You're going to go off and do things that you shouldn't be doing. They may sound good. They may feel good. You can rationalize all you want, but it's not what God has for you. Or it stops you from actually doing what God wants you to do. But failure to do what God's calling you to do, or they were failing to do what God told them to do by faith, will result in poverty and weakness in the condition which God did not desire for his people. But because of their choices, that's what led them to become very weak. Now we finish here in verses 49 through 51 with the leader, Joshua. Joshua's inheritance. He was promised an inheritance, just like Caleb's. But Caleb, before it all happened, he took his first. But the true leader here waited to the very end to actually get his land. Now it's interesting, when they had made an end to the, of dividing the land as an inheritance according to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. What does that mean? We'll give you part of our land. Which one do you want? Where do you want? Which tribe? Out of 12, which one do you want land from? That's what it's saying right there. According to the word of the Lord. Why? Because they knew that's what the Lord told them they needed to do. And they gave him a city which he asked for. So Joshua told them what city. Timnath, Timnath, Sirah, in the mountains of Ephraim. And he built a city and dwelt in it. These were the inheritances which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel divided as an inheritance by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So they made an end of dividing the country. So here's Joshua. He receives what he was promised by God. But it's kind of remarkable humility here. Because he receives his portion at last, at the very end. And it's just this kind of humbleness of this servant, a humbleness of serving and concern for others that makes Joshua even more of a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ that we've been seeing throughout the scriptures we've been studying. It's interesting. Caleb was a great man. It's amazing what God you know, used him. But he grabbed his inheritance first. But not Joshua. What a selfless spirit he possessed as a leader. 
how his behavior contrasts with so many political leaders today who use their positions and influence to enrich themselves and their families. Many times, people who come into power get corrupt by the power. Not just politicians, I'm just picking on them tonight. Because it's easy. If you've watched the news the last couple of days, you can kind of can't tell, you know, easy pickings. But that could be a leader in any organization. Does that leader in that organization use it for their personal gain? Because power can corrupt. The scripture tells us so. And if you find yourself in a position of power in an organization or God is raising you up and grooming you to be in a position so that you can be a great light and salt in a position of leadership, of influence. Be on guard, my brother or sister. The enemy is going to love to corrupt you in a way to cause you not to be humbled and not to not take advantage of your positions. Be very, very careful with that. Joshua did not. He was a very humbled and a selfless spirit within him. Joshua's choice of land even further reveals his humility. He didn't take the choice land on the Mediterranean Sea. He went into an area of a city that is rugged, uh, when you look at the map, rugged and uh, and fertile. It wasn't a, a luxurious place to plant. It was mountainous district, and it was in his own tribe of Ephraim. I can understand why he chose that. But when he could have asked for land for the most beautifulest and most productive area of Canaan of any of the tribes, he didn't take that. Like Caleb, he went to the mountains. And finally, when you look at that, I say, wow, look at Joshua's life. He was a general of the nation of Israel. He was his Moses general to go in battle as they were coming across the, the lands and into the land. Not only was he a general, he was an administrator. He was a national leader. And at the end of his life, he gets to have his own little city. And we see in the scripture that we just read that he built up that town. He became the man, the mayor. <laughs> he, was a, he, was, he was a mayor. He was probably everything. And he built up a city. He was a builder. I love it. When you study the characters of God's people and how much you can see in just the choices that they make or the choices they don't make. What a great, great, godly man. I can't wait to meet him. How about you? I can't wait to see Do you think about that? I think about these every time I study a person. I can't wait to meet him. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you again, Lord, for being able to come and just open up your word and freely just sit at your feet to hear from your word speaking to our hearts individually, using your word, by your spirit. May we be hearers, but also allow it to plant it as heart and to be doers of the word. That would be the, the, the word tonight would be what you would use to, that, that 
very sharp knife to just peer straight straight through and touch on things and subjects or points that needed to be touched by you. And may it just warm everyone's heart here tonight of your love for them, the fact that you love them so much that you are speaking to them through your word. We thank you and praise you for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.